HMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg, and I am Bill Newman-less today. Bill Newman is playing hooky today, um, so I would be very lonely in this studio if it wasn't for, well, one of my favorite segments, Fair Play with Duke Goldman from the Society for uh, American Baseball right, uh, Researchers. and um, Research. Research. <laughs> I was, research. I was reading as I was talking. I kind of knew research. Duke Goldman, I, um, I know that you've been thinking a lot about this notion of free agency. I am old enough to remember what we used to call the reserve clause, which made human beings chattels belonging to the various clubs. Um, and I would, so I'm thinking about free agency past, free agency present, and free agency future. So what about you? What are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about the Hall of Fame today because the Hall of Fame tonight has a vote. Tonight, they will be voting on players who have been on the ballot of the Baseball Writers Association of America, some of them new people on the ballot, and it looks like at least three, if not more, players are going to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Adrian Beltre, who famously played one year here in Boston, um, fabulous third baseman. Uh, Joe Maurer, who was a first number one draft pick of the Minnesota Twins. People around here may not know him too well, but he won three batting titles, which is never before or never since been done. A as a beautiful catcher. swing. Yeah. Um, and it looks like Todd Helton, who had starring years with Colorado, will get in. There's a couple more. Billy Wagner, who was a great closer, is on the margin. But that has taken me in another direction, to look back. To look back at a particular player who... Without him, there wouldn't be free agency because baseball used to treat, as you just said, players like a property that they had control over for their entire baseball lives, which meant under this reserve clause, a club reserved the exclusive right to a player, not just for one year if he didn't sign a contract, but as the phrase goes, in perpetuity, okay, which meant for the rest of his life, right? Now, you know, obviously his, his baseball life was 10 or 15 years, maybe, but that's, that's his prime economic productive years. So the consequence of that, if I own exclusive rights to you and my competitors on the field can't reach you unless I trade you or consent to it, I pay you what I want to pay you. More or less, right? Now, not to say that these players, many of them weren't reasonably well paid. You know, this all depends. What is fairness? We're going to talk about that a lot today. We talk about that in this segment all the time. Is it fair that a ball player makes multiple times what an average American worker makes? Is that enough? Well, Kurt Flood played for the St. Louis Cardinals, was an outstanding defensive center fielder from the late 50s through the late 60s. Um, had even some good offensive years. He hit as high as 335. A 335 batting average is a very high batting average. And he was great on the base paths. And he was good on the base paths as well. An excellent ball player. Maybe not quite Hall of Fame caliber as a ball player. But he had also built a life in St. Louis. He was loved in the town. He was a photographer and a sometimes painter. He had his own studio. He had a family and young kids. At the end of 1969 without being consulted, because the clubs, of course, didn't really have to by their rules, 
he got traded unceremoniously to Philadelphia where he did not want to go, and he refused to go. And he wrote a letter. This letter was written to the then commissioner of baseball, Bowie Kuhn, and he said, I do not want to go. I am not a piece of property. Okay? What did this lead to? Well, he brought a lawsuit against baseball saying that the reserve clause was illegal, that baseball's antitrust exemption, which had been passed, um, well, through the Supreme Court, which had decided this case in 1922, saying baseball was not in interstate commerce, which was even then kind of ridiculous. And yeah, by 19 given that so many clubs were in yeah, different Yeah, traveling states. all over. They were saying, uh, the, the court, that this was a purely internal within a state event. And the Sherman Antitrust Act dealt specifically with Interstate commerce. So Correct. The, the Commerce Clause says right. that that's Flood unlawful. brought this action. In order to bring the action, he needed the approval of the Major League Baseball Players Association and Marvin Miller, who was the head. And Marvin Miller told Flood, you know what? You will be sacrificing your career. And Flood said, I want to go ahead. And by the way, Flood was African-American. And Flood, even in an interview with the notorious Howard Cosell, stated, I am a well-paid slave which was a pretty controversial statement to make back then, right in the midst of, you know, still a civil rights movement that was going on. But I, I think he contextualized it beautifully. Yes, I'm well paid, except I don't have any options. I'm stuck here. I'm being sent to a team I don't want to go to. Long story short, and we could go on at great length about this, the Supreme Court at that point, after a couple of years, decided to uphold this anomalous decision. Okay? Flood sat out the 1970 season. He actually made a, an agreement with um, the owners in baseball that he would not be affecting his lawsuit if he signed with a team, and he did sign with the Washington Senators, played a few games, and after missing a whole year, and admittedly, Flood didn't take such good care of his body, and he just couldn't play anymore. So his career was abruptly ended in his early 30s. He really didn't get to play his entire career. But what did happen in the process was the owners felt pressure. They didn't know how the courts were going to rule. They had a feeling the courts, because they, they had a heavy thumb on the scale, they had a feeling the courts might rule for them, but they didn't know. In, in particular, about whether or not they were committing an antitrust violation Correct. when they recognized each, is, each team's exclusivity in their rights to a particular player. Because really and truly, this, this clause that if you didn't sign, the team could renew the player made sense for a year, but not for longer than that. So, in fact, in the courts, the owners even argued, well, this has to be negotiated with the players if we're ever going to change this. Well, then they were, they'd put them, uh, themselves under the spotlight, and they started to negotiate with the players, which may well not have happened had Flood not instituted this action. And so now, what did you have? You had the owners starting to give ground and creating a system of binding arbitration with the players. And eventually, as of 1975, the owners had players who tested the system, played out their options, didn't sign a contract, and arbitrators decided the reserve clause could not be renewed in perpetuity, and now free agency was going to happen. Even in that process, the owners also agreed to something called the 10-5 rule, which in a sense could have been called the Kurt Flood rule, where they said, you know, if a player has played 10 years in the majors and at least five with their current team, they get to refuse a deal. Well, Flood had done that in 1969. If that rule had existed, he would have said, no, I'm not going to Philadelphia. Either I stay with the Cardinals or I go to a team, you know, that, that I would agree to go to. So and Duke then, Goldman, 
What is free agency? Free agency, as was negotiated, means now that a player, after six years in the major leagues, can say, I am a free agent. I now get to sign with who I want to sign. I can market myself. I can market myself. You have to play those six years with the team that brought you up. But after that, you're free. And do you have you? Here's what I love about your segments: the fair play segment. You reside at the intersection of social justice and sports. Are there any misgivings we should have about this notion that after six years you are a free agent? Well, I think now we have to put the hat on of the fan, right? Of which so many of us are. Um, I certainly love it when a player starts their career with my team and they become what we call today the face of the franchise. And when we have a face of our franchise, all of us fans, we want to buy into that illusion that these are our homegrown stars, even though, let's face it, as Jerry Seinfeld famously said, we're rooting for laundry, right? But these players, even if they're not from our locality, they grew up on our team. So Mookie Betts, we all wanted him to stay with the Red Sox. But you know what? He didn't come to a deal with the Red Sox. He got his six years in. The Red Sox felt compelled to trade him to get some value for him, and he went off to the Dodgers. Right now, my Mets— He went to the Dodgers for a few hundred million dollars. Correct, and for a few measly ball players that really didn't— you know, reach the level of his value, and the Red Sox have never recovered. The Mets have a player named Pete Alonso, who we all love, who is now in his sixth year. And there's all sorts of talk. Will he resign? And, you know, he's trying to get the most money that he possibly can get, and arguably may not be worth that money. But we as Mets fans, I know Mets Nation wants Pete Alonso. If anybody asks a Mets fan, who's your guy? Who's the face of the franchise? Without even a second thought, they're all going to say Pete Alonso. He's the guy. So, to some degree, this free agency system means that unlike, let's say, you know, years back when Red Sox Nation had Ted Williams for 22 years and Carl Yastrzemski for 23 years, these guys now rarely, if ever, stay with that first team. So does it feel unfair? Yeah, it does. I, I'm not happy about it. On the other hand, would it be better to have a system where a player like Kurt Flood gets traded whenever the team decides they don't want him anymore? And they pay him whatever they want. And they pay him more or less whatever they want. While they're reaping the profits from to his To me, work. that's a bigger unfairness. And that's where I would balance it out. Is there anything we should be doing about this balance, the tension between the reserve clause notion that the team owns the right to a player and this the player's right to go to the highest bidder, regardless of fan loyalty. They're the ones who ultimately are paying the bill. Where would you land? The, the one thought I have is just like, say, football has franchise players. There w- it would be a possibility of setting up a system where a team could designate one player as a franchise player, and then that player um, is un- got, g- governed by a different set of rules that says maybe there's some restriction on that player as long as they get the highest salary of the entire team or the highest salary of a player of that position in the league. Um, again, th- you know, setting a balance to some degree, you're 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 restricting a particular player because they're the best. Um, that's something that would have to be negotiated in collective bargaining. I might, I personally, as a fan, would like to see that, but I don't know if it's really the best solution necessarily. Can we rewind the tape? Kurt Flood, Hall of Fame. So here's where I come down, and I'm not the only one. I've read many articles about this. There is going to be another committee called the Classic Era Committee 
that votes every few years. And the end of 2024, they are going to be voting on players from before 1980. And by the way, also Negro League players. I think Kurt Flood needs to be on that ballot. Now, this is where the Hall of Fame sets up a system for these committees. And it turns out there is something like, I, lo- I read this this morning, 10 to 12 apparently sports writers who are a screening committee for eight players that get voted on, or eight people, okay? So we, have n- we know nothing about the screening committee. The screening committee has their own you know, rationales for who they consider. And I think we need to find out how is this being decided because Kurt Flood should be one of those eight people. There are no rules that uh, set up criteria for selecting these people? No, I mean, the Hall has criteria that you, as a player, for instance, you have to have played for 10 years and you have to be retired by at least for at least five years. And Kurt Flood meets those criteria. Now, the other issue becomes, is he considered as a player, as a contributor to the game, or both? And the Hall's rules say you can't be considered for both. Why not? Kurt Flood was almost a Hall of Fame player, and then... Without him and Marvin Miller, we wouldn't be seeing free agency. We wouldn't have seen this transformation, which, by the way, one of the owner's biggest arguments against free agency was it's going to ruin competitive balance. The same teams are going to win all the time. The irony of that is before free agency, the same teams were winning all the time. As soon as free agency started, there tended to be more balance. So they they weren't right about that at all. Now, a lot of those people don't really want to see Kurt Flood in because he changed the game. And I think he needs to be seriously considered, along with three Negro League stars, because the Kansas City Negro League Baseball Museum, in 2020, there was a centennial commission. The first Negro National League started in 1920. They picked 32 people who belonged in the Hall of Fame who were largely from the Negro Leagues, 29 of them are already in the Baseball Hall of Fame. The other three are a player named Rap Dixon, an outstanding outfielder, and two pitchers, John Donaldson and Dick Cannonball Dick Redding. And those three should also be. I think with those eight players, 50%, having four of those eight be Kurt Flood and three Negro League stars to be considered, I think that would be fair. This is our Fair Play segment. We are speaking with Duke Goldman. I always... When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, about that, the, the Negro League issue, which you just raised. Why is it important for us to recognize Negro League players, especially now that the major leagues have conceded the Negro Leagues were major league? We'll be right back with Duke right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The po- You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Duke Goldman in our Fair Play segment. We've been talking about the Reserve Clause. We're now talking about uh, Hall of Fame. Um, And we were talking about how Kurt Flood, because of the way that he changed baseball's contracts with its players, uh, should be entertained as a member of the the Hall of Fame. So the Hall of Fame, I want to go back to Negro Leagues, but first I just want to ask you, we have managers in the Hall of Fame. We have general managers in the Hall of Fame. We have baseball writers in the Hall of Fame, right? Mm-hmm. Why, well, only one baseball writer is actually in the Hall of Fame. They have a separate wing for writers. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I broadcasters. St- I stand corrected. But yeah. what about someone whose uh, unwillingness to be treated as chattel, as a piece of property, 
and whose lawsuit changed the way baseball is run, shouldn't that person be in the Hall of Fame? Well, there's a direct precedent for that. Buck O'Neill, who is a Negro League great, but mostly as a contributor, not a great player, but then became a manager and was the person who was basically the ambassador of the Negro Leagues, greeted people at the Kansas City Museum. I went there and met him when he was 90 years old. He'd, He'd be in the lobby talking to everybody who walked in. Buck finally got in a couple of years ago as a contributor to baseball because he made an impact in terms of bringing recognition to this important facet of baseball history. And Kurt Flood, who was a better ball player by far than Buck O'Neill, easily should qualify as a contributor because he really changed baseball history and sports history, and in some sense, civil rights history, right? Speaking out as an African-American man, being a martyr to a cause, saying, look, yes, I'm well paid, but I don't have freedom. I deserve to have freedom. And then, as I've said, I think he should also be recognized as someone who was pretty close to being a Hall of Fame caliber player and probably would have reached that caliber had he not gone ahead and made this lawsuit that ended his career, essentially. Turning our attention to Negro League players and whether the Hall of Fame should be uh, more uh, embracing of the pool of candidates, uh, terrific players who played for the Negro Leagues, it's kind of comparing apples and oranges when you're comparing Major League Baseball uh, without uh, black players to the Negro Leagues. I'm not sure that you could really say, sort of like Japan versus the United States right now, yeah. right? But uh, the Hall of Fame, who's a hall, who should be in the Hall of Fame? Well, and that's, you know, the people can talk endlessly about that. I wouldn't say it's apples and oranges. I would say it's oranges and nectarines. <laughs> you know, I think they're they're you know the brand is pretty similar. The flavor was a bit different, but you know they were still on a field playing baseball, top level baseball. And some of these players, they don't have the same records. That's where the difference is. Now, two of the guys I'm talking about, John Donaldson and Cannibal Dick Redding, um, if you look at their numbers now that have been put into the BaseballReference.com database, they have put some Negro League records out there. Donaldson and Redding don't have good statistics because most of their key years of play were before the Negro Leagues in the 1910s when they were phenomenal pitchers. So we need more information and that requires committees who are willing to study the additional information. Uh, A gentleman named Peter Gorton has done research and discovered that John Donaldson won something like 401 games in his career. Okay, Playing all sorts of you know, level, semi-pro, whatever, and you could say that's not Major League Baseball. No, but it was the baseball he had, and he was a phenomenal player. And the experts, the researchers who are involved with the institution, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, have seen fit to anoint him as one of the 32 people most deserving of consideration as a Hall of Famer. So doesn't Donaldson deserve a chance to be considered? In fact, he has been considered before, and he was turned down. I think he he needs a fresh look. I think Redding needs a fresh look. And Rap Dixon, whose actual statistics in the 1920s in baseball reference are off the charts, he's another player that deserves consideration. By the way, there's probably about another 20 or so beyond them that should be looked at because there were so many great players. And 
I've looked at all this. I won't be the. I'm not one of those people who says that the Negro leagues at that time was ev- every bit as good as the white major leagues because they lacked the depth. But the stars were every bit as good. The top players were absolutely every bit as good, and they need to be seriously considered. And this year, Cooperstown ha- is opening a new exhibit called Souls of the Game: Voices of Black Baseball. And in that year where they open up a new exhibit, that's the year that they should also be saying, we're opening up to bringing more of these deserving players into at least consideration for the Hall of Fame. Well, whether whether an orange or a nectarine, they both have appeal. Forgive <laughs> me for that. <laughs> so <laughs> what is the future for free agency, Duke Golden? That is... I don't know. I, I believe that players, rather than owners, should reap the benefit of the incredible skills that they've developed over time and bringing in those, you know, putting fannies in the seats, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to admit, when I see a $700 million contract, it rankles me when there's so much poverty in this country. And um, I don't think anybody needs to have a $700 million contract. What's the future of free agency? Well, you know, the problem is these things are negotiated. So all we can do is, you know, in the court of public opinion, people can put pressure. Um, I would like to see that more pressure is put on the owners. I don't. I wouldn't have any problem at all with the players making less money or even having a salary cap if it went along with the owners making concessions as well. If they're going to put in a salary cap, how about a cap on ticket prices for the next 10 years, Right. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I don't see why the players should, should be restricted while the owners go waltzing off to the bank, which is what they do. And why people are so burned about players making a lot of money but don't seem to mind that billionaires make more billions, I simply don't understand. I don't either. And, and when somebody wants to bring his, his or her kids to a baseball game and it's going to be a $400 day and, you know, a hot dog is going to cost more than filling your car, it, it is... It's, oh, it's offensive. It's, it, it bothers me greatly, and you know, I, I for one, do not want to pay the out- outrageous prices that they're charging these days at ballparks. And this applies to all the other sports as well. You know, sports has become. It used to be. You know, again, I don't want to sound like you know an, an, an old person who's talking about the good old days, but you know, back before my time, even a fan with fifty cents could show up at a ballpark. Now, fifty cents was a lot more than it is today. But they could show up at the ballpark and get into a game. And today, the equivalent of 50 cents, then maybe that's 10 bucks. You can't get a ticket for 10 bucks or anything close to it. That really sounded like an old person talking about the good old days. Yeah, well, you know, getting old is better than the alternative. <laughs> I remember in 1966, uh, when I was in Atlanta, it, it cost $1.75, you can get a ticket. General admission, but you could get a ticket. So, uh, yeah. No more. That's not the world of 2020. No, it's 175 instead of a dollar 75. Yes. Duke Goldman, I love having you in studio, and I love this segment so much. And uh, I always learn you're as good an educator as you are, a researcher as you are, a fan. So thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. We're going to be right back. There's a really interesting production that's being uh, an East Hampton theater company, and we're going to talk to Michael Budnick, the producer, and Pedro Sarazina, who plays Lady Blues, a live torch song a singing drag queen. I can't wait to hear about this right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.